0: All right, good morning. So I'm just gonna start this off. Halloween was my least favorite holiday growing up. and I know that's shocking, I'm thankful the kids are gone because the easiest way to sell a holiday to a child is free candy, like loads and loads of it. But I knew better. Unlike the stories of Jesus's birth on Christmas and the pilgrims coming to America on Thanksgiving, Halloween never had a moral didactic for my young brain that I've truly found compelling. Now, in hindsight, most of what I learned about Thanksgiving got deconstructed once I got to high school, and Christmas did not survive either after college. Um, but Halloween still seemed to lack a spirit that, uh, the rest of the, that didn't set the day apart from the rest of the calendar year. In much the same way that I was dismissive of Halloween, I, I have a real aversion to the apocalyptic texts in our tradition. Uh, And when I say apocalypse, I think most of us have this shared popular understanding of the stories in the Bible that talk about the end of the world and all the crazy shenanigans that accompany God's salvation of the righteous and punishment of the wicked. Stories about dragons, archangels, devils, and all the good Halloween costumes basically come from these stories. When I was younger, I was afraid of reading apocalyptic stories because I was afraid they'd be true. like. Everything I heard about the rapture in church sounded pretty horrible, and I didn't want any part of it, so I mostly shied away from those stories. And now that I'm older, I still have an aversion to the apocalyptic genre, but for different reasons. Many of the visions just feel kind of corny to me, like all the preachers who claim the end of the world is nigh just put a bad taste in my mouth for these stories. So let's try to reclaim them a little bit today. So when I was asked to preach on, uh, well, I had a choice on Halloween and apocalypse genres, I was like, perfect. Two birds, one stone. <laughs> a chance to work through my tumultuous relationship with Halloween and the apocalypse genre, amazing. And I honestly think they're a perfect fit for each other. What, what could be more of a Halloween story than the dead rising from the grave? So Daniel 12, which is the text that Vince read for us, is the first attestation of the resurrection of the dead that we have in the Bible. And that can be surprising because Daniel comes toward the end of the, the Old Testament, which I'll refer to as the Hebrew Bible. It, it comes towards the end. And for most of Christian history, we, we tend to think a lot about resurrection from the dead. But for most of the Hebrew Bible, the, the authors don't really talk about death. They, they kind of just focus on the here and now. They had this vision of the afterlife that was basically a shadow version of this life, kind of like in Stranger Things, The Upside Down. Um, And they called it Sheol. So life after death was just this shadowy existence without much of the highs or lows that came with life. Daniel's take, presented in this story, is decidedly out of step with the tradition from which he comes from. And I want to know why. So to get more technical into the book, uh, the book of Daniel is actually really interesting as a text because it's written in two languages. It's Aramaic and Hebrew, uh, which is nerdy. You don't need to know anything about that, but it's, it's cool. Uh, and the first part of the book, which is the part that's written in Aramaic, is the stories you're probably familiar with. Daniel and the Lion's Den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, all the stories that are immortalized in history through the groundbreaking television series Veggie Tales. Um, and it's from these stories which I derive most of my theology as a child. And that was basically all I thought Daniel was about. Oh, Daniel survives the lion's den. That's great. That's... It wasn't until I was much older that I opened the book to discover that the latter half of Daniel reads like a Pink Floyd music video. I mean, in chapter seven, a leopard pops out of the sea with four heads and an even scarier monster, then scares it away that has ten horns. And one of the horns has human eyes and begins to speak arrogantly. Like, what? And these visions last five chapters and make up the Hebrew section of the text. Each of the visions is a different explanation of the future being revealed to Daniel, who, as we see in the text, and as I would be, is just stunned and confused. Um, And now here's where most interpreters, I think, get this book and Apocalypse is wrong. You don't have to worry, like I did when I was nine, about finding the ten-horned beast in some foreign nation, some world leader, some corporation that has some weird logo, because scholars have a pretty good guess about what this monster is referring to, and he's been dead 2,000 years. Uh, Based on the dating of the Hebrew in the text in comparison with other sources, most scholars assume that the text is talking about Jewish persecution at the hands of uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Don't worry about remembering the name, this baddie Antiochus. And from 175 to to 165 BCE, this guy Antiochus ruled over Israel with an iron fist. And if you're interested in learning more about his story, I refer you to another holiday called Hanukkah. And uh, first and second Maccabees detail the resistance and triumph of the Jewish people over Antiochus' rule. But behind the story of Hanukkah and our story in Daniel was real loss of life. Freedom was not free and success was not guaranteed. Unlike the earlier stories in Daniel where the lions don't bite, where the fire doesn't burn, resistance was met with real painful ends. Daniel's depiction of the time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations was not speaking about some distant future. It was speaking about his contemporary experience of oppression by the, at the hands of Antiochus, which brings me to the question, why the resurrection story? Why would a group of people who've not really thought about life after death all of a sudden write in a belief about resurrection that seems contradictory to their past? A positive reading would say that the writers imagined that God would never forsake them, even if suffering was all around them. So God eventually would write this wrong, even if it's in the future. A more negative reading is that the promise of resurrection serves as propaganda, which guarantees a certain reward for the martyr's sacrifice. You go fight Antiochus and die in battle, don't worry, you're gonna revive later as the star. And this negative reading struck me particular in my work as a military chaplain, candidate in the Army Reserves. How often do we tell ourselves stories about the honor or glory of our actions to justify a soldier making choices of life and death? Certainty in the end result of our cause closes doors of decision-making, which I believe should stay open. And now I talked about Shakespeare in a previous sermon. I'm gonna bring back Shakespeare. My guy, he's my guy, Uh, the the high school uh, English is really coming out, Um, but in Macbeth, we see that both Lord and Lady Macbeth are shaped and encouraged by the certainty each one has in Macbeth's path to the kingship. Macbeth murders his boss, he murders his best friend, and countless others as he seeks to uh, live into his fate. And while Macbeth's actions are criticized in the play and by the audience, we often use certainty of our own fate to justify um, what we're talking about and to stay out of dialogue with those whom we disagree with on Facebook or in real life. And certainty is really nice. Back when I first joined the military, my my friends and classmates would ask me how I felt about possibly being injured or killed in a war, and I'd respond half-jokingly with, at least I know where I'm going, which would usually warrant a chuckle from my friends, but beneath the quip lay real truths about how little I had to think about fear in light of the certainty I had about my future. An uncertain future is really freaking scary, but scarier to me are those whose certainties of the future cannot be put into doubt. So if the apocalypse genre is primarily a rhetorical tool to legitimate our actions in light of some overarching narrative, what good is it for those of us who aren't so certain in our ability to know the future? This dilemma is why I tended to shy away from or be critical of the apocalypse genre in years past. I used to critique Halloween because I didn't think it was didactic enough. You know, what's the lesson to be learned from dressing up as Winnie the Pooh and eating an unholy amount of Kit Kats? But I actually think there's two lessons from the holiday that open up the apocalypse genre for me. The first lesson is mystery. Think about the best horror movies you've ever watched. They're great because they keep you on the edge of your seat wondering who the killer is, who's going to survive, what's that weird noise coming from the basement, why is no one making logical choices. The Scream series is a perfect example. The dialogue between characters is okay. You know, the death scenes are mostly unbelievable, but the twists of who it is underneath that ghost face mask keep me watching. In all seriousness, um, I think the general openness to conversations around what we don't know really opened up this holiday for me. The second lesson, other than mystery, is the ability to envision the world differently. Halloween movies love to challenge us in the way we think about death, life, sexuality, and the proximity of our world to something divine. Now, on Friday night, I went to the midnight showing of Rocky Horror Picture Show at the Music Box, and although there's a lot going on in those performances, I love how it reimagines the world. It reimagines beauty and enjoyment, and in the theater, no one type of body is celebrated as beautiful. Everyone, in fact, is dressed up in ways that wouldn't fly in the office on Monday. And the way that that space creates a world where everyone feels beautiful in their own skin is part of the imaginative process I think is important for fixing our world. Similar to Rocky Horror, apocalyptic visions present a world that is vastly different than the one we inhabit now. While often the depiction of apocalypses is fire and brimstone, the biblical story is actually pretty positive. In Daniel, the martyrs are envisioned to shine like the stars in the new world, which sounds pretty nice. It's pretty much the opposite of their real experience in the midst of Antiochus' persecution. The ability of the second temple community to envision a world without oppression is what led them to pursue the freedom that they knew was possible. The Christian faith would be radically different if it weren't for the acceptance of mystery and the ability to envision the world differently. Throughout his ministry, Jesus drew on the apocalypse genre to create new worlds like he does in Matthew 25, which imagines a world in which the stranger, the marginalized, and the downtrodden were given food, clothes, and shelter. The ability to envision a different world is perhaps most expressed in our commitment that the real suffering and death of Jesus on the cross is a victory at all. Here, we may fall into the same narrative condoning religious violence which accompanied Daniel and which many Christians have done throughout history. We've often taken Jesus's death to create two groups of people, those destined for heaven and everyone else destined for hell. And if they're going to hell anyway, we might as well help them on the way. Look at the Crusades or the various theological enterprises to anticipate the date of Jesus' coming. Jesus and certainty are not a good combo. And maybe the failure of the disciples to ever get anything right about Jesus should be a guide for us. I think it's the humility of mystery paired with the hope of a reimagined world that let us truly live into the significance of the table set before us. The success of the church was not certain, Just as the success of the Maccabees against their oppressors was not certain either, it took real people making hard choices, sacrificing for one another, giving freely and organizing to continue the early church. Just as it takes real work here to collect 140 coats, feed LGBTQ youth at the crib, show up Tuesday nights for a Bible study, or volunteer to go to Biloxi for a full week. It's scary to believe that success is not certain. Spiraling violence in Israel and Gaza, the ecological issues facing us every season, our political leadership, they scare me a lot. Even outside this context, the experience of being a human being every day is enough to cause people anxiety. I draw hope from the apocalypse genre and the story of Jesus in the church to imagine that the world could be different. I can imagine a world where violence isn't our first go-to, where hope beats despair, where broken people can be restored, and where imbalances of power can look equal. I can imagine all these versions of the world, and because I can imagine them, I can do something to create them. God's story continues, and they've given us the freedom to write our chapters in it. And that makes me a little less scared.